The following is a teaching message from the chapel in Tiatatu. For more information about the chapel, please visit www.thechapel.org.nz. This morning we conclude our short four-week series on the book of Jonah. Four weeks and four chapters. Chapter one, Jonah runs from God. God catches up with Jonah. Jonah's thrown overboard in the midst of a Mediterranean storm and a great fish swallows Jonah. Chapter 2, Jonah spends three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, talking with God, listening to God, and then the great fish vomits Jonah onto the beach. It's a lovely story. Chapter 3, Jonah goes to Nineveh. Jonah calls the city to repentance under threat of destruction and the city repents and when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened now that's amazing grace but Jonah seemed, but to Jonah this seemed very wrong and he became angry He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, while I was still at home? That is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn... The next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die, and he said it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. And I am angry, and I am so angry, I wish I was dead. But the Lord said, You haven't been concerned about the plant, though you sorry, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for this great city of Nineveh? in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. And there the story ends. Jonah is sitting with the view of the city of Nineveh, watching and waiting to see what will happen to the city of Nineveh. It seems he is still hoping that God will act and destroy Nineveh. As I read this, as I, in fact, as I've reflected especially over the last three weeks on this story, I've been reflecting on Jonah's 
reluctance to go to Nineveh to bring the message of impending judgment and the call to repentance. It seems that Jonah would rather die than go to Nineveh. In fact, back in the first chapter, as the seas were getting rougher and rougher, they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for you? He just said, pick me up, throw me into the sea. Not, can you try to go back to shore so I can head to Nineveh? It's like, nah, just throw me into the water, let me drown. And now here we are in chapter 4, and three times, three times in this one chapter, Jonah just says, it'd be better if I was dead. As I reflected on Jonah's reluctance to go to Nineveh, I did wonder whether his reason was fear. After all, by the king's own admission, everyone needed to call urgently on God, let them, let, let everyone give up their evil ways and their violence. This was not a pretty city. Even the king knew that it was not a pretty city to be in. In fact, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And the Assyrians had a reputation for extreme violence. One article I read said that Assyria was well known for their violence, which they would implement on those who oppressed, on those who oppressed them. Their violence is remarked upon by nearly all of their adversaries who saw it as inhumane. Some may have been propaganda, but there was a fire behind the smoke. And then the article goes on to describe some of the atrocities committed. And I was talking to Warren before the service, and he's obviously done a bit of homework as well, and it talks about skinning people and stacking their skins in piles. And so I decided not to go into too much detail of the sort of atrocities that were committed enough to know that some of the things we think are atrocious, these guys took to another level. And so I could understand why Jonah would not want to go to Nineveh. Many of you would know the Ministry of Open Doors, and some of you will know that they create a, uh, as, they serve, as they serve the persecuted church, they create an annual world watch list ranking the 50 countries where Christians are the most persecuted. And the 2024 list is topped by North Korea, followed by Somalia, Libya, Eritrea, Yemen, Nigeria, Pakistan, Sudan, Iran, and the list continues. Would you accept the call of God to go as a missionary to some of those countries? Would you go alone? Would you walk into their cities and walk around for three days telling the people that if they don't repent, God's going to destroy them? That would leave me afraid. Would you go to North Korea? It's interesting that uh, Mark and his wife, and Laos, that's number 21 on the list. But to go to number one, and Assyria sounds worse than number one. And I certainly wouldn't want to go, not with the message that Jonah had to deliver. But I get this feeling that Jonah is not running for his life. He's not trying to preserve his life. He's right ready to give it up any moment. So I don't think he's running in fear. In fact, he would rather die 
than go to Nineveh. Was Jonah concerned for his reputation? Think about it for a moment. You take your life in your hands, you spend three days walking around through this violent and evil city telling everyone to repent because God's going to destroy the city and they repent and nothing happens. You know, we'd call you a false prophet. You prophesied something and nothing happened. You'd look stupid. Now we might find that difficult to understand. We look back to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah that we looked at last year where God rained down burning sulfur and obliterated the region. But now nothing, not even a lightning strike, not even a minor earthquake where Jonah could go, see, it could have been so much worse if you hadn't repented. Just nothing. Even the king of Nineveh, and calling for everyone to repent, he had still anticipated that something might happen. It's like God may yet relent, but let's repent anyway. But nothing. Not even a neighbourhood wiped out. Would that make Jonah look foolish? However, what becomes really obvious as we read in chapter 4 is that it wasn't the fear of what might happen to him among the evil and violence of Nineveh. And it wasn't a fear that he might look stupid, foolish, if there was no outpouring of destruction. Quite simply, Jonah didn't like the people of Nineveh. Their evil ways and their reputation for violence had likely added to his reasons for not liking them. But the bottom line is he didn't like them. He didn't want to see them saved. Given who they were and what they did, they deserved to be destroyed. God, Jonah wanted God to deal with them to wipe them out. Jonah didn't want to go and preach to them because he was worried that they would hear the message, they would welcome his message, they would repent, and God would save them and preserve their city, and Jonah didn't want that. That's what he thought. I know that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And I don't want that for them. We need to be rid of them once and for all. Now, I don't advocate, believe me, I don't advocate walking down the street telling people to repent before God destroys them. There are some who would take that approach. That's not my approach and I wouldn't recommend it. Not because of what will happen to you, because I don't believe that communicates the love of God. What I do advocate is obedience to God. That's why we have these questions. What is God saying? And what is God doing? And while sometimes we might hesitate to obey because of fear, or at least because we feel a little uncomfortable. And sometimes we might hesitate because we might look bad. You know, you feel that prompt to pray for someone and you don't 
because if I pray for them and God doesn't answer the prayer, I'm going to look bad. Or use the example, God might look bad. We might feel foolish. But I wonder how often we actually hold back because God is asking to do something, asking us to do something for someone that we don't like, quite frankly. We don't think they deserve our help or God's. So here in chapter 4, God gives Jonah a very simple but powerful object lesson. As Jonah sits looking at Nineveh, still hoping that God will wreak havoc on the city, God provides a plant to give Jonah shade and Jonah is happy. And then the next morning God gives a worm to destroy the plant and God turns up the heat and Jonah is angry. And God says, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah goes, yeah it is. I wish I was dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. Should I not have concern for this great city of Nineveh, in which there are 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? There's some uncertainty about what they mean by those who cannot tell their right hand from their left. Some have suggested it's young children under the age of five who have yet to learn their left hand from their right hand. And so that means the population would be about 600,000 people. I did a bit of reading online and found that actually 14% of adults can't tell their right from their left. So maybe it's only half a million people. But when they look at the ruins of the walls of Nineveh, they find it would probably have only housed a maximum of 175,000 people. And so others therefore conclude that the 120,000 is the total population. Going on to explain in details that I don't have time for, you can Google it, I can give you the link, that the phrase, people who cannot tell their left hand from their right hand, is a reference to people who cannot tell right from wrong. Drawing at least in part on this verse from Ecclesiastes, that the heart of the wise inclines to the right, the heart of the fool to the left, And if you don't know your left from your right, you're not sure what's right and what's wrong. You know, when you grow up in a city of evil and violence, it can be easy to overlook the true nature of evil and violence in your own life. When people around you keep telling you that something is right, it can be quite a shock when you discover the truth. We have a society that will tell you all sorts of things are right and normal and healthy and good. But that's not what God says. And certainly when the Ninevites heard Jonah's message, they were quick to acknowledge their sin and quick to repent. They weren't going, oh, we're not that bad. They actually realised, man, we are. They believed God and a fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. 
when they were confronted by the message of what is right and what is wrong and that they needed to repent, there was no hesitation. Even in our society in which there is so much evidence of evil, it can be quite easy to think, well, man, I've seen some of these other people, I read the papers, I'm not that bad. But Romans 3.23 reminds us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And in Romans 6.23 we're reminded that the wages of sin is death. Most certainly the Ninevites deserved destruction. They didn't deserve God's grace or his forgiveness or his mercy. But neither do we. However, as Jonah rightly declared, God is a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Not those we like, not those like us, but whoever believes. And so the solution is, just don't tell them. If you don't like them, they won't know. And if they don't know, they won't change, and God will get them. But I'm reminded of the teaching of Jesus in Matthew. You've heard it said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and he says, Reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you only greet, sorry, and if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's a high standard. And then I'm reminded more of the heart of Jesus and the heart of the Father. We're told that Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And I kind of got that picture of those who don't know their left from their right. They don't know which way to go. And he didn't just have compassion on some of them. He had compassion on the whole crowd. I've shared it before. I've prayed for years that God would give me a heart for the lost. And it was in Bizarrely in 97 watching the movie Titanic. And that last scene as the boat goes below the waves. Something in my heart ached, not for those who are drowning but for those who are drowning without Christ. And suddenly I knew something had shifted in my heart. 
One of the reasons that I've gone prayer walking, I haven't done it for quite a while on the peninsula, I need to get back to it, is just walking and saying, God, give me a heart for this community. Not just for the people who come to the church. Not just for the people who come to the community trust. Not even just for the people in this community. You know, our desire as a congregation is not about this congregation. One of the reasons is like, what's God been saying? What's God been doing? Marcus, when you share what's happening with the 40 young people, or 39 young people coming in, that's an answer to prayer. We've prayed into that. But more than that, when we reach out and surround Marcus and Beth and their family with our love and our care and concern, we're investing in those young people. Whatever you do, wherever you go during the week, everything you do, I pray, is encouraged and fed in by what happens in this place. That's why this place exists. There's a book called uh, Contagious Disciple Making by a guy, David Watson. David Watson created Discovery Bible Study. And I have a habit of buying 10 copies of the book and giving them away. I was at a barbecue in Hamilton and I gave a copy to a couple, Keith and Joy, and some of you met Keith and Joy, they've come to the chapel here and they'll be here next Sunday. Because Keith and Joy were missionaries for 10 years in Thailand and one of the people they met in Thailand was a Kiwi by the name of Mark who's coming to speak here next Sunday. And they introduced me to Mark, but they also introduced him to that book, a copy of the book that I gave them, they gave him. And when he read that book, he began to engage in Lao using Discovery Bible Study. Just sowing a seed because I care about more than what just happens here. I used to get in trouble on a Sunday because I used to say here, I didn't come to be the pastor at the chapel. And someone said to me, oh, you can't say that, at least people are uncomfortable. That's not that I'm leaving, I'm here, it's nine years. But I didn't come to be the pastor at the chapel, I came to sow something here and in the community and beyond. And one of my favourite parts of this gathering each Sunday is hearing people say, what God is doing in them and through them. Because that's what it's about. And not only for people that we like, but for people far from God, far from us. The book of Jonah finishes a little bit up in the air, really. It doesn't have a nice conclusion. It basically has God saying, should I not have concern? for the great city of Nineveh. We're not told what Jonah's wise response was, or what his actions were, or what Jonah did, because that's not important for us to know. What's important is this. What will we say? And what will we do? God bless you. Thank you for listening to this message from the chapel in Teatitu. For more information about the chapel, please visit www.thechapel.org.nz or email info at thechapel.org.nz.